Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is high summer. If you're on your holidays, I hope they're going well. If you're at home and it's slashing rain or still continuing to drizzle well, you know, commiserations. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm experiencing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but two things I want to do before we start, John. I want to clarify two things. Yeah. On Thursday last, we spoke about Italy and we had the discussion about Italy. And I was actually thinking when I was in Italy, what really defines Italy and what actually makes the country tick is what I observed, which is that Italians get into people's heads, that they're probably the best marketers and brand managers in the world. And therefore, what they do is everything they manufacture, they seem to apply as much effort in marketing and branding and positioning as they do in manufacturing. So Mm. they don't make any tat. Everything they do is so high-end. So their cars, you know, there's a reason Italians make Ferraris and Maseratis. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a reason that Italian couture sells at much higher markups than any other couture in Mm. Italian fashion. There's a reason that Italian food sells at a much higher markup. Italian wine, Italian design, Italian coffee machines. It's style and substance. Well, what it is, John, style and substance. I always think, by the way, always go together. I always think this this expression of, oh, he's all style, no substance is bullshit. In fact, (laughs) style and substance, style is substance and substance is stylish. Right? I've always thought that. But what the Italians have managed to do in a world where China has been forcing manufacturing into a race to the bottom and based all on cost, so manufacturing industrial parts of the world have been dragged downwards by the Chinese, mm. the Italians thought, fuck this, we're going the other way. We're not going to compete with you in the mass market. We're not going to undermine ourselves. What we're going to do is we're going to get inside your heads. And we're going to brand and we're going to design. And we are going to say to people, you will be proud of having an Italian product. 
and you will actually brag about an Italian product. And it's that amazing understanding that what do you do when you're faced with a juggernaut like China? What you do is if you compete with them on price, you're gone because you cannibalize yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. But what the Italians have done, and that's, I was sitting in Milan train station, John, trying to figure this out after we did the podcast. What makes a difference? And it's that idea that the Italians are marketing geniuses. And that's what has allowed them play the high value added game. And once you play the high value added game, what you're basically essentially means, I will make this thing for 10 euros or yeah. 100 euros, but I'll sell it to you for 300. And that bit in the middle is marketing. That bit in the middle is fantasy storytelling. And the Italians are better storytellers than anybody else. And that's the secret of their success. That's my, my conclusion, John. Hence, you have a Vespa. Hence, I have a Vespa. Exactly. Eggs, you're absolutely right. And not a Honda 50. <laughs> and not a Honda 50. Exactly. And not a Honda 50, right? The other thing I thought about in Italy, which is they have a huge national debt, massive, yeah. massive national yeah. debt. And I thought what has really benefited the Italians is COVID, right? The Italian debt market was bailed out by COVID. And I'll explain that to you, right? So the two things come at the right time. When the coronavirus, COVID, whatever you, whatever you choose to call it, when we went into lockdown, the ECB reacted by saying, okay, don't worry, we'll extend as much credit as possible. We'll buy up as much debt as possible. What the ECB did at the first sign of a debt crisis in Italy, and there were signs of this about two years ago, that the markets were selling Italian debt, the mm. ECB bought all the debt. So the ECB has bought okay. all Italian debt yeah. and it's put it into a big, basically in a skip, right? In the ECB. Yeah. <laughs> and it can't now unravel that trade because by unraveling that trade, it risks a sort of a debt crisis again in Italy. So the Italians have managed to sort of outsource the ownership of their debt to the ECB and they can genuflect to COVID. And they can actually <laughs> say, thank you very much, COVID. What right? happens to that debt now? What, what, are we well, paying for that a, then? No, the one of the Europe? great, one of the mad things about central banking, and it's something that people really don't appreciate because they can't get their head around, which is because the central bank prints money, yeah. it can actually buy up whatever it wants and stick it in effect in a big skip. Yeah, stick a match to it. The private sector can't do that because the private sector is borrowing money, but yeah. the central bank's printing the money, so it's making the money up. And what they've actually done in the in the in the Italian case. And I think we're going to talk about Spain and maybe next week as well. In the Spanish case, yes. they've bought up all this debt. They don't have a balance sheet that says your debts and your liabilities or your liabilities, your assets should match because central banks don't have a balance sheet. It's a notional balance sheet. And they've bailed out the Italians. And the Italians are saying, thank you very much. And this is what makes the whole thing tick. They've just been lucky. Was that a smart move or was it kind of something they fell into? Absolutely clever. I've, I remember I talking about the Italian economists, right? Yeah. These are clever, clever people. And that's why the Germans are so pissed off about everything. Because <laughs> they've been outsmarted and outfoxed and outplayed and outmaneuvered by the Italians. That's the whole thing. So there's there's the top of the podcast. What's on your mind, John? Well, actually, just before we go any further, I got a message in on my LinkedIn the other day from a Martin Nutty. He says, you got my name wrong. This was Martin Tutty who was tutting away, who contacted you with a correction about yeah, the American, American mortgage. Yeah. yeah. 
And and yeah. you said he was his name was Martin Tutty, and I said he was tutting away. But actually, he's doing his nut now because his name is Martin <laughs> Nutty. So I had to put the record straight there. Apologies to Martin Nutty, who I believe is I know is based in New York. So yes. if you're listening to New York, Martin, our apologies. Our apologies. And in fairness to Martin, he is recommending the podcast widely in New York and America. So fair Well, he's also a Patreon. He actually pays for this stuff. Yes. So double, double big up to Martin. Number one, recommending. Number two, paying for it. Anyway, then just to change the mood slightly, because the big story of the week was Sinead. Yeah. Losing Sinead O'Connor. And it was like, I was shocked to have to say, it was almost like losing Elvis. The way it was covered, not just yeah. here, it was wall to wall. Obviously, it was wall to wall here and in the UK, but right across Europe, right across America, it was the, the front page news, and rightly so, rightly so. But for me, like I know you have a story about Sinead because Sinead was a local girl; she was Dunleary girl from Glenageary. But for me, and I just want to say this: not only did Sinead make a beautiful sound with her voice, but I believed every single word that she sang wow! in every song. And that's because she owned every song she sung. And that for me is soul. That's real soul. And that's real power. And it was that kind of, she had this amazing power and fragility in one breath. Incredible. Yeah. No, it's, and a it's, huge uh, loss. She was the ultimate punk in my view. Oh, there's no doubt of that. Yeah. No doubt of that. Yeah. You know, all the other, all the other fellows were in the Hapney place. Yeah, absolutely. But you actually have a family connection with her. Yeah, it's a it's a very strange thing, John. I actually knew Sinead O'Connor before she was Sinead O'Connor. And by that, I mean, I knew her when she was 13, 14, 15, yeah. 16. And an unusual set of circumstances. I'll bring you back to the first time I met her was St. Stephen's Day, I think of 1978 or 79, maybe 78. Right, okay. Uh, I had... My father had three unmarried sisters, my aunties who lived in Bray, and they were quite religious. And they lived in a place called Duncairn Terrace, which is one of those big terraces in Bray, one of those kind of mm. big sort of old Victorian houses. And they got involved in a movement that some people will have heard of called the Charismatic Movement. And the Charismatic yes. Movement was yeah. a Catholic movement which was informed by Pentecostal evangelical thinking from the United States. They had a big gig in the RDS, I think, around that time, because my aunt went to that. Well, they had a massive... So the charismatic movement was it was called Charismatic Catholic Renewal, and it was all about being born again. So it was mm. a parallel movement that was a born-again movement side by side with the established Catholic Church. So outside of Mass, this went on. Mm. And it was, again, came from the United States, like all these movements do, or many of these movements do, and it was an extreme form of Catholicism, which, well, with all sorts of things like faith healing and pilgrimages and all this sort of stuff. And my three aunties, I think maybe two of them really got involved in this. And the reason it was the late 70s is that we forget in Ireland that when the Pope arrived in 1979, mm. what preceded that was a huge upswing in extreme Catholicism. They thought this was going to be the beginning of another massive surge in Catholic observation in Ireland. The Pope's visit was actually going to be the start of something new for them. Yeah, that was the highlight, yeah. In the event, it was the end. This is the interesting thing. Mm. 
in the event the Pope says it was the end of the whole thing and declined after that. But they thought, so ahead of that, there was this huge outpouring. So we built lots and lots of churches in the 1970s, right? You remember the Guardian yeah. Angels when you were to school? Those sort of Absolutely. big suburban big churches built in the well. 70s. Ugly, awful things, right? But actually, I'm quite intrigued by Catholic architecture from the 70s. Okay, I'm quite intrigued because it's the only example of modern architecture in Ireland, right? Where these yeah. extraordinary churches built things. It's kind of, it was like as if Picasso built churches, right? They were very bizarre. But anyway, let's come back yeah. to that, right? So we're talking about the, the, the mid-1970s, the late 1970s. And this charismatic movement was centered in Bray, where my aunties lived. And Sinead O'Connor's mum, Mary, also joined this charismatic movement. Yeah. So they were bonded at the hip, my aunties and Sinead's mum, by this evangelical Catholicism, right? And again, as I say, against the background of the Pope's visit and against the background of this extraordinary movement in parallel with the Catholic Church, but extreme Catholicism. Mm. And my aunties used to have every Stevens's day a party, non-alcoholic, very, very, like it was a party with no booze, which is very unlike us, right? <laughs> and I remember the very first time I, I, I would go there and kind of enjoyed it because you're a kid, you know, you get prezzies and everything. But... The O'Connor family, so that's yeah. Joe, Emer, Sinead, and John, turned up. And I'd never met them before, but I'd heard about them. Yeah, Sinead was exactly the same age as me. So yes. we were kind of stuck together, the two of us, right, at this weird evangelical party, right? When I say evangelical party, there was lots of happy clapping going on and lots of talking about God. And Tambourines all sort of and guitars. All that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> now, in the end, my cousin Tony also joined that, and he married Sinead's sister, Emer. Right. My sister Anne is the godmother to their son. So the, the okay, families were completely right, yeah. enmeshed together, like yeah, really yeah. enmeshed together. And this was like, my mom and dad didn't join this charismatics movement, but we were aware that this was going on. Mm. So I bring you back to the first time I met Sinead was Stephen's Day of 19, it must have been 79 because the Pope had just come and just arrived. Mm. And because her mother was a very strange woman and there's been a lot written about her mother, Mary, who I remember as being quite dominant, but she forced, imagine when you were, when you were like, we were 12 or 13, right? Mm. And when you're 13, you're incredibly conscious of your image. You're kind of yeah. what you wear. We, we were mods you're, at the time. You're just becoming, yeah, you're becoming a teenager. And actually, she didn't really, really like the jam. I'll tell you about that in a second. <laughs> but, you know, you're aware of your image. And Sinead's mum forced this most beautiful girl to yeah. wear what looked like a Victorian dress, Right. The most weird sort of thing, because the mother was very, very odd, right? And again, yeah. it's against the background of this really evangelical Catholicism. And again, what I saw was a renewal movement was, was talking about you had to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is what it was all about, right? Mm. Yeah, it's the born again stuff, yeah. And there was literally, literally the sort of mystical Catholicism, but very, very corrosive stuff. Very corrosive stuff. And Sinead and I used to sit there together because we were the same age. And we'd sit on the stairs of Duncairn Terrace outside while the rest of them were all happy clapping upstairs and talk about Top of the Pops, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, so who was on Top of the Pops? Because they'd meet every Sunday, right? So we'd have to go yeah. up there quite a bit. And so we got to know each other and we just giggled all the time. She was so funny and such a total laugh. And yet it was very clear that there was something going on in that family that has all come out now, and particularly with Sinead and her mother, Mary. And I remember when her mother died because for some bizarre reason, my aunties called my dad 
when her mum was involved in a car crash on what is now Church Road in Ballybrack. Yeah. You know, just at the top there of Whitefield Road. But for some reason, I don't know why I remember it. It kind of was something in our in our family that was like, oh, you know, you know, Mary O'Connor's, you know, been in the car crash, et cetera. And then the next time I saw Sinead, she was busking under the central bank. Do you remember the central bank? You could busk there because it was quite yeah, off, off Dane Street. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like for, for years, and I, I've spoken to her, her brother Joe about this, and then with the, the marriage of my cousin and, and Emer afterwards and, and all this, we were kind of condemned, Sinead and I, to sit on the stairs of this bizarre union of people and talk about music, pop music, right? Yeah. And interestingly, she didn't like the jam. She had no interest in them. Why? I don't get that. I don't I mean, know. I, I was saying, the jam are the best band. And she said, no, they're yeah. shite. And, but I mean, but the amazing thing about it was always just really good fun. Like, funny, yeah, yeah, funny, yeah. funny, mischievous, bold, carefree, a great person to be around. And then I'll tell you, about 30 years later, I'm doing a gig for Jemison in Middleton. So yeah. Jemison called me up and say, we are introducing a new line of whiskey. And we are now having a big event. And at that big event will be all the whiskey journalists from America. So the people who write about spirits and write about whiskey and mm. there must be all these whiskey magazines and whatever, right? So they were introducing Bizarre, a, new, yeah. a, new, a new product. And they said, look, will you go up and do the song and dance routine and explain what's going on in the Irish economy, explain what's going on in, in Ireland, explain to them Ireland, right? And I said, yeah, fine. Okay. So I went down to Middleton and I walk in and Sinead's sitting in the corner and right. she was doing the entertainment. She was, it was a corporate gig for her. It was a corporate yeah. gig for me and a corporate gig for her. So we look at each other and suddenly we're back on the step of four Duncairn, Terence and Bray <laughs> in 1981 or 1979 or whatever. And we go there and it was amazing. We sat down, we start to giggle about it. And she just looked at me and she was reminiscing of that. And she goes, you're about to go on stage now. I'm going up after you. She says, how did us two Egypts get to be here? that's the way life is so that whole evangelical part of her life and that was forced upon her was that what she was railing against do you think this is the interesting thing I've always thought I mean I've watched Sinead from afar over the years uh, like we all have and I always try to understand where that well first of all any Irish woman born in 1966 is going to hate the Catholic Church yeah, for absolutely. all the reasons we know and yeah. all the right reasons, is going to rail against them. But in Sinead's case, I think you cannot disentangle her view of Catholicism from that extreme charismatic Catholicism that I experienced as well. I mean, I, I thankfully my my mum and dad didn't go in for it, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. What it was was exactly like being a born again Christian. Yeah. So there's one thing that Catholicism tends not to do which is to encourage the individual relationship with God. Because Catholicism is all about, that's the priest's job. He interprets the scriptures. He's the boss man. You guys go to mass. He'll tell you what's going on. And that's how the hierarchy sticks. Because this was imported from the United States and was more Pentecostal or evangelical, what it had was all about your absolute personal relationship with God. But unlike Protestantism, which was all about you and God can chat together, or certain parts of Protestantism. This was always extreme adherence to Catholic creeds as well. So extreme adherence to no divorce, no abortion, no sex before marriage, no contraception. Women should know their place. Children 
who are born out of wedlock will end up in Magdalene laundries. Yeah, it's all about yeah. shame. It's all about guilt. All that stuff. Now, Sinead was being fed that by this movement mm. at a very, very young age. As I think we're all the, the family, and some of my family too. Yeah. But it was a form of, I would call it kind of rampant Catholicism, which was rampantly anti-feminist, which was rampantly anti-women. And she was getting this force down her throat by her mom. Yeah. But we were just these two kids who kind of said, what the fuck is that shit going yeah. on upstairs? You know? And so I, so I think that's where, that's maybe the root of her subsequent anger was because she was exposed at this very young age, in Bray of all places, yeah. to this very extreme form of religiosity, almost going back to kind of medieval morals about God and about Catholicism, which amazingly, John, was quite popular in Ireland at the time. Yeah, uh, well, she remained quite spiritual. So she was always looking for some sort of relationship with God or a God. And hence yes, her various different incarnations. But it's interesting. And that, just... that, so sorry to interrupt you, John. I think that also comes back from there. I think that also stems back from religion being a very significant part of her life. And that evangelical side of, as you say, the direct relationship with the spiritual yeah. power that's greater than just the congregation. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it's interesting. I remember uh, reading something that you wrote many years ago, believe it or not, about the relationship and correlation. And there's an economics point between religion and the rise of religion and the standards of living. And that the higher the standard of living, the less religious a society and yes. vice versa. Yes. And Ireland yes. in that time, in the late 70s, early 80s, was a horrible place to live. The standard of living was on the floor, as you know. So religion became more prominent. And the idea of religion is that kind of putting your faith in God or something when you've got nothing else, because there's got to be something better than this shit. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that what we see is that in every observation about economics, there is this, as you say, this inverse relationship between religious observation and economic growth. Yeah. And maybe the reason is the following, that religious observation and the idea that the meek will inherit the earth. Think about the, the tenets of Christianity. They're very, very yeah. radical. It's a very radical idea. And that all you've got to do is lead, lead a good life here and you will be, you will be rewarded. And if you think of what Jesus said about, you know, a rich man has a lesser chance of getting to heaven than a camel going through the eye of a needle. I mean, this it's, is this is what he was on about, just right? Just crazy, crazy stuff, yeah. But really radical stuff. Yeah. Really radical stuff. So basically, there has always been this notion that Catholicism in particular, but more, all religious observation, because it's based on the commune and not on the individual, right, is always going to retard economies from growing. Mm. And you see that, like you see that in the United States, the most religious parts of the United States are the least wealthy, right? And yeah. the most wealthy parts of the United exactly. States. And the United States is like a good Petri dish because it has religion on the one hand and non-religion on the other hand. Yeah. And, it, and you, can, you can actually do an experiment there. But yeah, no, it comes back to, you know, religion is ultimately philosophy and it's ultimately a set of rules. And capitalism is ultimately a philosophy and a set of rules. And economics. And so absolutely, as I've always said, I've always said that 
the key determining factor for the Irish economy exploding since the late 1980s have been what you could describe as little mutinies going off in people's heads. Mm. And one of the first mutinies we had was against religion. We had private mutinies all through the 70s. And in effect, what when Sinead and I were two 13-year-olds sitting on those steps and 14-year-olds, we were having our little private mutinies. Yeah. That was our, our little mutinies. And I, of course, was much more private. She said, no, fuck this. I'm going out to, to tell the world, right? Yeah. And I was more typical of the, the, the kid who just thought, look, it's too much hassle to have a big scrap here. I will just go into the box room in Windsor Park and listen to music and bunk off mass and basically it'll go away. Yeah. But we were having private mutinies. And if you think about the way the economy works, it works in this whole idea that people who have private mutinies tend typically to not accept dogma. When you don't accept dogma, you tend to be a slightly disruptive person because you're not, and she is the ultimate disruptor, right? You're disruptive, you back yourself. And she said, well, I'm going out to make an album. I'm going to go out and sing. Well, I'm going yeah. to go out and tell the world. Well, she could rebel with a beautiful voice, unlike yourself. But uh, well, well, absolutely, John. Absolutely, but not. But you know, you just look at her. She was in Sign Hill, you know, when we were kids, when mm, at that age, and I was yeah. in, I was in the school beside her in Black Rock, and and I'd remember seeing her at the bus stop and things, and we'd meet and we chat, and you'd look at her, and she was just so spectacularly pretty. That was yes. it, like pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty, striking. She really and striking. Uh, as I said, I knew Sinead O'Connor, and she had long hair. Yeah. Uh, it's so tragic, and she's such a major loss, not just to music. But you know, the interesting thing, and this is what I want to get on to, John, Sinead said something which I this really struck me, which she said, I am not an entertainer, and music is not about entertainment, right? I am an activist. I am an agitator. I am enraged. I am going to deploy music to tell a story and to actually galvanize other people. And so when she ripped up the Pope's picture, yes, her, I think her SNL, agent yeah. and her manager and her music people, they said, oh my God, your career is over. And she said, no, it's just beginning. This is what I'm about. You know, I am about using music as a tool for change or using music as a tool. And recently, John, I have been reading a new book. Oh, yes. And you are going to love this book. It's called The Subversive History of Music by Ted Gaioia. I think I'm pronouncing it right, an American musicologist like yourself, John. And I've been listening to the radio and I've been listening to, to Sinead's voice again and again and again and talking about this idea of music as a, not even a weapon, but music yeah. as something greater than entertainment. This book has kind of struck a chord in me because this is all about the origins of music and where it comes from. Oh, wow. That sounds brilliant. That sounds like it's right up my street. Tell us more about that after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I was just thinking there, Mark, you, when you mentioned about just thinking back to those churches being built in the 70s, you know, with the Baker's Corner one, the Guardian Angels, all those just yeah. in our area. And there were and the ones in Johnstown where I went to national school. There's a yes. massive big yeah, church yeah. built. Yeah, Huge churches and ugly as sin. They really were. But <laughs> yeah. what, what struck me about it, and when you mentioned that book and that audiologist, one thing that I'm actually a little bit obsessed with is going into churches and cathedrals and just listening to them. Just listen to the echoes and reverbs and beautiful, smooth sounds. My family actually really slagged me off about this because I walk in and either clap my hands or whistle or hum or cough. I normally walk in and have a coughing fit just to hear the sound of them. And the one thing that those new 70s churches missed was the acoustics. They missed the whole point of the design of those old churches, which was all about sound. The sound of the organ, the sound of the monks and the plain song. And the whole idea was to reflect the kind of sound and the voice of God. Something huge and otherworldly almost. You're absolutely right. And of course, John, those churches in the 70s, those we'll refer to them as the charismatic churches. Yes. Were actually the first churches that were built on a mass scale in a time of microphones and amplification. Yes. So they didn't have to focus on this idea of, as you say, the acoustic, this, what do you call the sonoric value of, of, of the place, right? Now, fascinating, John, you talk about acoustics. I'm going to talk to you about music, Sinead O'Connor, and the Stone Age economy. Go on. That is right. So, yeah, we had sonoric values. So you mentioned, you mentioned the audiologist. There's an audiologist guy called Igor Reznikov, who's an expert on the acoustics of European churches of the late Middle Ages, right? Ooh, he sounds like my kind of guy. I want to talk about Igor, right? Because basically, if you think about the origin of music, you think, where did it come from? You've got to go back many, many thousands of years to the hunter-gatherers, and I, as I call us, hunter-gatherers and scavengers, because we were all three, right? Yeah. And one of the best pieces of artistic endeavor that we have inherited from our ancestors as a series of caves in France that were discovered in the 1940s mm. by two little boys, it seems, went into these caves called Lescaux, L-E-S-C-A-U-X. And they go into these little caves and they come back out and they tell their parents they've seen paintings in the caves. And the parents right. say, oh, don't be talking shite, basically, you know. Clip around the ear. Clip around the ear, you know, exactly. Get in there for your dinner, right? Eventually, archaeologists discover these series of caves called the Lascaux Caves. Mm. But fascinatingly, the boys were right. 
that what the boys saw were cave paintings. There are over 600 of these paintings, and they're largely of animals. Right. And interestingly, of wounded animals. So people thought this was interesting. This is obviously a hunt, and this is the first known evidence of human art. And for years and years, people thought, well, you know, these are clusters of paintings. They're deployed randomly around the caves. Nobody gave a second thought as to why the paintings were where they were in those caves. Yeah. Apart from being in the caves. Yeah. Except from our friend Igor. And Igor is exactly like you because he was an audiologist and his obsession was medieval acoustics in churches. And what he used to do, he was in a habit of, and you're probably in the same habit, John, of humming when he went into a building. Yeah, yeah. And while he would hum, I bet you you do this too, right? I do, I do. And cough and clap and stuff. And so exactly. So he was trying to find, he's trying to find, to use the acoustic G-spot, John, okay? (laughs) Yeah. In a building, right? I know you don't know where either are, but there we go. We live and learn, right? So it's when Igor went into the caves in the 1970s, he realized that the paintings weren't random. The locations of the paintings weren't random. The paintings were located at the most acoustically sensitive part of the cave. Right. So these people were singing to the images, right? Mm. So they didn't just paint these things randomly. They painted them as you would do in a medieval altar, to to your point, of the most acoustically and sonorifically important area of that cave. So then the deduction was that these people were singing or chanting to the animals. Yeah. And then they realized the animals were largely wounded. Right, okay. This was a depiction of a hunt. Yeah. So now we think is that the humans were chanting in order to get themselves in the zone for the hunt. So this idea, back to Sinead O'Connor, when you said at the top, you believed everything she said, the idea of music being a transformational entity that transforms us, that engages us, that, you know, it's not entertainment. It kind of, in some way, music is something much, much deeper, right? Much, much deeper. So then they thought, okay, what we're witnessing is maybe this is the first gig. Right. Imagine this This is is, is the three arena. This is a three arena for Stone Age people, right? Yeah. So now we're thinking, okay, so humans were using chants. And we know that, for example, humans love the tribal nature of music, right? Yeah. So you go to a football match, people chant the same chant. There's, there's a bonding. There's a very good book by a guy called Caretti on crowds, okay, which is another great book. But that idea of, you know, if you see, like, for example, like when, when Irish people sing traditional music together, when we sit in a pub, mm. we bond with each other over the music. Absolutely. When you talk about the tribal part of music, I mean, that's what basic dance music is. It's the four on the floor and the sweet spot for the tempo is 120 BPM. That's no accident. That is your heart beating. And that's up at a at a tempo that and your head starts nodding. And that's what dance music is all about. It's exciting. And while Irish music, on the other hand, is more of a triplets based, it still has that tribal kind of driving four on the floor. Anyway, I'm going off one, no, so I'm going to have no, it back no, to you. No, no, but this is, this is what I want to come because I'm going to get to the Stone Age economy and it's all mm. related, John. It's all related, yeah. right? So... Imagine this tribal version. So the music bonds you together. It's also exclusive. And of course, music is a way of telling the story. You know, I've been always, we started this 
discussion about religion, right? Yeah. Did you know that Martin Luther, you know, Martin Luther's was an incredible pamphleteer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hammering the stuff on the church door. His, his, his 93 things on the, on the door, right? However, Martin Luther wrote his pamphlets to be sung, not to be read. Okay. Because Martin Luther understood that singing is a way of passing down information for people who can't read. And that's one of the roles of music and culture has been always, it's been like, it's been our template. Yeah, yeah. It's been like a book, except people could sing and you didn't have to be able to read to be able to sing. So it's a huge part of information. And Luther got this. He got this, that the way in which he would attack the Catholic Church is he would write little small sonnets, in effect, little poems that were written to be sung. And by singing, you bond people together in a sort of a transformational way. And you're all in this together, right? But let's come back to the Stone Age economy, John. We never think that the Stone Age people had an economy. It was all based on productivity, right? So the hunter-gatherers are sitting around. They're thinking, okay, we have to bag this mammoth over here, right? That's that's the way we're going to survive. And what we want to do is we want to get most mammoths with least work. Right, so they're the yeah. same as ours. Yeah. They're lazy fuckers, like all of us. All yeah. humans are yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. How do I get most mammoth with least work? Yeah. So what I've got to do is I've got to freak the mammoth out because the mammoth's stronger than me, much much stronger. Yeah. And this is where talking comes in, right? Because talking allows us to organize things in a very eclectic way. But looking at the coincidence of the images of the wounded animals. Mm. And the fact that they were in the most acoustically sensitive part of the cave implies that singing and hunting went together. Now, why is that? It is because if you think about a pre-industrial age, animals, be they humans or anything, were very unused to loud noises. We didn't hear loud yeah. noises. Yeah, yeah. Loud noises is a thing of the modern age, right? It's a very yeah, new apart from thunder and stuff like that. Exactly. But what is really, really loud are a hundred humans chanting together. Yes. That's really fucking scary. So a theory is, and I love it, is that humans used singing for hunting in the beginning. Yes. Not for entertainment, yeah. Yeah. not for passing on it, but for scaring animals. So they'd go into the cave, they'd figure out their chant. A lot of the acoustics was they would be able to mimic the sound of the animal. Imagine this, right? Right. Then they would come out all buzzed up after doing, it's like the Burning Man for real fucking Stone Age people. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're buzzed up, they're loved up, and they use singing to scare animals yeah. and to drive animals into traps. So the chanting was a technology used by humans to increase their productivity so that they could bag the mammoth with least work because singing doesn't Perfect. actually cost you anything. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that goes deep to this idea that music's never been about our idea, this paradigm that we have, and it's back to Sinead, that music is about entertainment and about an audience is wrong. It's new. Music was rarely about an audience. It was always about mass participation. Yeah. And this is why the Greeks, when the Greeks talk about their theatres, right? You know, you know if you, if you typical Dublin theatre from the 70s called the Odeon Theatre, Yes. You know that name, yeah. the Odeon, right? Yeah, yeah. Odeon comes from the Greek word Adian, which is to sing. And they're amphitheaters. Okay, I didn't know that. They were not called auditoriums, because auditorium is where you go to listen. They yeah. were called Odeons. It's where you go to sing. 
because singing was a mass participation event. Brilliant. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is that if you go back to the origins of music, this idea of the performer singing to a hushed auditorium, entertaining the auditorium is incredibly new. Mm. What is actually the origin of music is using it as part of our broad culture to inform ourselves, to pass things on, to become part of the tribe, to gel us together. And as Sinead said, to be activist, to actually use music. Yeah. And so yeah. when I listened all weekend to all the various people talking about Sinead O'Connor, all the various people talking about her significance, I thought to myself, what was it that bonded her to us so enormously and and kind of in a way in which people didn't really understand until she was gone. And what it was, John, is that same urge that the Stone Age people had, that music was transcendent and that music was us and that Sinead was saying something more important. And we recognized that in her. Yeah. Almost slightly yeah. shamanic, you know, this idea of the shaman, almost slightly yeah. shamanic presence. And what's extraordinary for me after all these years is to go back and think about those two little kids sitting on the step in Bray in the late 70s and early 80s. And all we were trying to do was get away from the charismatics. Yeah. That's the way life is. Lovely. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.